Well, what a privilege it is to be here and what an overwhelming gift it is to be in this pulpit today with this full house. I do not uh, take this responsibility lightly, so let's begin in prayer this resurrection morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was uh, personally devastating for me to watch Notre Dame Cathedral burning this week. I've been up on that roof, uh, which is now gone. I sat for four hours watching the light shift and move through the naval stained glass window, which is also now gone. I'm thankful for what was spared, but saddened by what was lost. It looked a little scary there for a while that there might not be anything left. So I'm thankful that there's much left to build on. What was most interesting for me, though, this week was how people responded to this tragedy. I watched uh, social media. I watched the Newswire. I watched... uh, op-eds come in, and everyone seemed to have an opinion on this, but not just a a personal opinion, but an opinion on what Jesus has to say about this event. Some said we need to rebuild and restore this monument as fast as we can for God's glory as a way of honoring Jesus Christ. Others said that Jesus does not care about stained glass and we should shift our focus and attention to contributions to the poor instead. And I'm not here to make a comment on either of those, but, but It is a reminder to me that even in our culture today, the question of who is Jesus and what is Jesus all about is still as relevant as ever. We see the statistics, we read articles, we see the anecdotes. We are living in a post-Christian society. Institutional religion is, is not real valued. Traditional moral values have become passe. More and more people are comfortable just stating I have no religious belief at all or affiliation at all. And yet, and yet, when Notre Dame burns, within hours, people are telling each other what Jesus would do. More staggering was to see the thousands of Parisians singing Ave Maria in the streets through tears. Now, I've been at Mass at Notre Dame, and I can tell you The amount of tourists taking pictures is tenfold that of people who are worshiping Jesus, and yet they worship and they sing when the fire is raging. All this to say that even in what we would call a post-Christian society today, so many are still asking that fundamental question. It's like a visceral question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is he all about? Who is Jesus? Is he someone that cares about holy buildings? Is he a moral guru? Is he a liberator of the poor? Is he someone who we turn to only when things are burning around us? Well, the New Testament has an answer to that question, who is Jesus? That answer is found in what we call the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, which create the the nucleus of Jesus' message and the nucleus of the New Testament. The Gospels are the story of Jesus, and they identify Jesus with three different names to tell us who Jesus is. The first of those is he is a rabbi. He's a rabbi, which means teacher. In other words, Jesus was a a wise person who taught people. He was popular to the point where 
People were so compelled by his teachings that he had to teach out in, in open spaces because there weren't rooms to fit everybody that wanted to hear him. The crowds had become so big. He was highly intelligent. He was compelling. He was brilliant. He was well-spoken. But the Gospels tell us that Jesus is more than a rabbi, more than a teacher. He was also the Messiah. Messiah means king. You see, Jesus' teachings were not just abstract altruisms or quotable maxims. Jesus' teachings were all about what he called the kingdom of God. Mark's thesis for his entire gospel is, the kingdom of heaven has come near, repent. And, where, and, and, and who, has brought, who is it that's brought this new kingdom? It's the Messiah. It's the king who is Jesus. He's the one that the Old Testament spoke of and foretold, and, and he's here to usher in this, this kingdom of God which knows no earthly boundary. And if that's not enough, the Gospels offer a third name. Not just rabbi, not just Messiah, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word here is kurios, which is a translation of the Hebrew proper name for God, which is Yahweh. So to say that Jesus is Lord, if you come here and you say that this morning, Jesus is Lord, that is to say that he is the one true God, the embodiment of the creator of the universe. This is an audacious, radical claim. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher, but he was the king. And he wasn't just the king, but he was the one true God. Now, I don't doubt that some of you are here this morning and you don't buy this at all. And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. But whether you're a, a person of faith or not, whether you can buy this in part or in whole or not at all, you might be asking, but, but how can we really believe in this? I mean, how did we get here today in the year 2019 where we're talking about this? Isn't it, isn't it far more likely that this was... This, was a, this guy was kind of a first century Jewish hippie. He had a cool beard. People liked him. He, he had a compelling message of love that, that centuries and centuries of people have, have changed and crafted and curated into an image that makes sense to them and makes sense to their society. Isn't that much more likely? I mean, how do we get to the point where we're calling this one guy the one true God? And the answer is, we got here by the resurrection. It's the resurrection. Look at our text again. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb, and there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. I don't know what that means, but that's evocative, right? They shook like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. So come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell the disciples that he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him. Now I've said this to you. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, Jesus said. And they came to him, and they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. 
There's so much to say in this text, but I, I want to focus on these women and their reaction to the risen Jesus. They are filled with fear and joy, an amazing combination. And they ran to tell the disciples about what they had just heard from this angel. When Jesus greets them, and John Mark Comer's translation of how Jesus greets them is, what's up? And it really is a good translation because this is the most common of salutations. This is the, hey, how's it going of the first century? So Jesus appears to them and says, hey, what's up? And they come to him. And what do they do? They clasp his feet and they worship him. Now we read this and we say, well, yeah, okay, so this is Jesus. He was dead. He, he, he was raised to life. They're seeing him and, and it's Jesus and all the things that he taught. So this makes sense to us. But think about this for just a second about what these women did. First, they fell at his feet and they clasped his feet. Distinguished Arthur, uh, scholar Arthur Carr makes a pretty convincing argument that in the ancient world, when you fall at someone's feet and you clasp somebody's feet, you are recognizing that person as king. This is something that vassals would do. They would come to their king and they would clasp their feet as a sign of, this is my king. I am under this person's authority. So they're recognizing Jesus as king. That's what these women are doing. But not only that, the text says that they worshiped him. Now remember that these women were Jews. They had grown up with the, the holiness of the monotheistic God drilled into them at every term, where any worship rendered unto anything other than the one true God was punishable as adultery, uh, as idolatry. And here they are worshiping Jesus within minutes of the resurrection. This is remarkable. Do you see what Matthew is communicating here through these faithful women? Jesus is rabbi, teacher, Messiah, king, and Lord, one true God. Within minutes of the resurrection, these women are, are, are owning all three of these names because the resurrection of Jesus seals the deal on who he is. This Jesus was not just a good teacher. He was a king, and he wasn't just a king. He was the one true God. C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea quite memorably in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. Go read it or read it again today. And he makes this iconic Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. He actually borrowed the logic from some other really smart people, Watchman Nee and, and John Duncan. And it's known as the trilemma argument. And here's his argument. I know it's small on the screen, so I'm going to read it for you. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim as God. This is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, the resurrection doesn't give us the option of seeing Jesus as just a moral teacher because the resurrection is God's yes to all of Jesus' claims. It validates his teachings and his healings and his miracles and and his claims, which is why these women recognized it in real time and fell fell at his feet as their king and worshiped him as their Lord. It is the resurrection that brings into focus and understanding that Jesus is Rabbi, Messiah, and Lord. It is the fulcrum point of human history, and it is why we are here today. It is the backbone of our modern Western civilization. It's why we sit here today. So if this is true, and the resurrection is so powerful, and the arguments for Jesus as Messiah and Lord are so airtight as I'm positioning them, then why are there more tourists in cathedrals than worshipers? Why is Jesus pushed to the margins of society? Well, that's a symptom of our post-Christian age. If we think about our history in in the West here, we can can break our history down into three parts. A pre-Christian era, a Christian era, and a post-Christian era. Hang with me here. The pre-Christian era in in Europe, our our ancestors in the faith, for for which reason we're sitting here today, that that society, that pre-Christian era was one of gods and goddesses. It was violent. It was tribal. It was a, a very divided society. It was essentially barbaric. In Northern Europe, this is our ancestral heritage here in the church. It's good for us to recognize that we lag behind for hundreds and hundreds of years the rest of the world, the Islamic world and the North African world and the the Mediterranean world and the Asian world, behind basically everybody. Our our ancestors in the faith were, were barbarians. They were godless. But then came the Christian age, where Europe fell under this broad category that we now call Christendom, a sort of syncretism of Christianity and European culture. It's important to know that this does, this does not mean that everybody in this age was Christians or that it was a purely Christian age. It certainly was not. You read the history books, there's a lot of lamentable things in our heritage. But even though it was never purely Christian, the Judeo-Christian values were at the center of society. In fact, the church was at the center of society. Literally in the center of most towns was the church. And that was symbolic because it gave a set of moral and ethical standards and values. And the values of this Christendom did a lot of wonderful things as well. It gave rise to the Enlightenment and to modern science and to medicine and technology and and women's rights and high art and hospitals and orphanages and democracy and social services. Those were the realm of Christendom. Those were the realm of the church. And they were all hallmarks of the Christian era informed by a Judeo-Christian ethic that was directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus. But most scholars and sensible people who are observing things going on in the world today would say, we've moved on from this Christian era. We are now in a 
post-Christian era where the church is not the center of society. And if anything, Judeo-Christian morals and ethics are, are scrutinized or, or outright under attack at times. We might, we might not feel that so much here in the Midwest, but go and travel to the coasts of this country. Go to Canada. Go to Europe. You feel it. You feel that we're in a post-Christian society. The fastest growing religious group in America is called Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. No affiliation, no set beliefs. We have our first serious presidential candidate in Bernie Sanders who identifies as a nun, first time ever. 500 years ago, it would have been unthinkable that, that, that you could be in this society and not at least believe in God. But here's what you need to know about this post-Christian culture that we're in, and, and, and we're not changing. It is what it is. Here's what you need to know. Pre- and post-Christianity are not the same thing. We didn't just leave the Christian era and go back to pre-Christianity, returning to, to, to this barbaric kind of society with, with, with this kind of godless culture. Sociologist Mark Sayers says it this way. Post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity whilst simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christianity attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. In other words, and we just need to own this today, we live in a culture that wants Jesus as a teacher and a guide. We want the benefits of Jesus' kingdom, but we don't want him as our king and lord because we want to be our own kings and queens and lords. We've been talking this entire Lenten journey about consumer culture and the ways in which it seeps into our faith, and, and probably nothing is more insidious than the ways in which we consume and commodify Jesus himself. We bend Jesus to our interests and make him our spokesman for the things that are most important to us. Jesus becomes the reason that we raise a billion dollars to rebuild a cathedral, or he becomes the reason that stained glass doesn't matter at all. We call on him and we sing to him when the building is burning, but we ignore him in times of peace. We want what Jesus teaches. We want the good stuff that can uplift and instruct and help us, but we want to retain the reign of of our own individual wills. We want the Garden of Eden. We want to be naked and unashamed, but we don't want God in the center of it telling us which trees to avoid. We consume Jesus, taking the parts that we like, like ingredients at the grocery store, and we ignore the stuff that we don't like. And this is a grievous offense that we are tempted by all the time. which is all the more reason that we need the real, full experience of Jesus Christ. Because as we consume Jesus, as we take the parts that we like while retaining our own wills, while we curate our lives and try and fit Jesus into the cracks, we know that deep down we are broken, we are a mess, 
And that having Jesus as just a good teacher who only affects certain portions of our lives leaves us unsatisfied and lonely and helpless and unfulfilled. And it is not an adequate answer to the problems that we face or the problems of this world. But what Mary and Mary model for us is something quite different. An affront to our post-Christian society, they offer us a model of what it means to no longer consume Jesus, but to allow Jesus to consume us. When we live like Jesus is just a good teacher, we're consuming him, fashioning him to our sensibilities and interest and will, fitting him in where it makes sense, trying to enjoy the benefits of the kingdom without the king. But when we recognize that Jesus was more than a rabbi, that his claims are true as evidenced by the empty tomb of the resurrection. We fall at his feet like Mary and Mary, and we recognize him as king of our lives, and we worship him, and we recognize him as the one true God, our Lord, Yahweh. When Jesus is rabbi and Messiah and Lord to us, we don't consume him. We allow him to consume every area of our lives. Because here's the good news. That's why Jesus came. Because he needed to die and to rise again so that his goodness and his grace and his love for you could completely and totally consume your life. It's because he loves you. This is the power of the resurrection And this is the way of resurrection that we must live in as his followers. Look at the end of chapter 28. Jesus appears to his disciples, and look what happens. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, right? They worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always till the very end of the age. They worshipped him, but some doubted. This actually is an intellectual doubt. That's not the word that's used here. A better translation is, but some hesitated. Some worshipped, but some hesitated. They knew that this was Jesus They were told that he had been raised from the dead. They knew that he was going to meet them in Galilee. The teacher, the king, the Lord. And some did just as Mary and Mary modeled for them, right? They they worshiped. They fell at his feet and they worshiped. Allowing their lives to be consumed in surrender to Jesus. But some hesitated. They didn't know how to respond. My friends, on this Easter Sunday, the choice is yours. Lord, liar, or lunatic. The resurrection is God's yes to the claims of Jesus. And it's going to lead you either to worship of him or you're going to hesitate. You're not going to know how to respond. And I stand before you today as someone who on a regular basis hesitates and doesn't know how to respond. So I want to give you a tool here today. Wherever you're at today, I don't know where you are in your faith walk. Maybe you're you're coming here today and you're saying, Rabbi, Messiah, and Lord, I'm, I'm all in. Maybe you go, I don't even know what I believe here. Or maybe you go, I say these things, but I hesitate all too often. I'm not sure where you are today. But I want to give you a tool. I'm, I'm just going to invite you to, 
if you're willing, to put your hands on your lap and lift your palms up to the sky. I'm going to invite the band and and Ruth to come forward as, as they prepare to lead us in worship. I have a simple prayer that I'm going to put up on the screen, and I want you to scan it a couple times before I ask you if you want to join me or not. I want to let these words sort of sink in. If this is a prayer that's in your heart today, I'm going to invite you to just pray it with me. It's the prayer that's in my heart. And we'll do it slowly and we'll do it purposefully with our very posture being open to God. But I want to encourage you today, don't hesitate. Don't hesitate this day. Instead, let this prayer be our form of falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him. So if this prayer is in your heart, I'll invite you to join me. Jesus, forgive me of the ways in which I consume you. I invite you this day to consume my life. You are my rabbi, my Messiah, my Lord, my life is yours. Again, again. Jesus, forgive me of the ways in which I consume you. I invite you this day to consume my life. You are my rabbi, my messiah, my lord, my life.